It's the Nahum Siegel Network, and it's the uh, OU Jewish Reaction Program that you hear each and every week here at uh, the Nahum Siegel Network. I thank you all for tuning in and remind you that we are with you um, on our stream at NahumSiegel.com and, of course, through the incredible NSN app, which I hope you have. Uh, it gives you an opportunity to listen from anywhere around the world in the easiest fashion possible. NSN is what you want to search for on your iPhone or Android. And uh, in addition to that, of course, pay careful attention to all of our social media sources, including Facebook, where our Facebook update page is simply entitled Nahum Siegel Network, and on Twitter, at Nahum Siegel Net. There is a brand new Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom, volume number one. It is a release of the OU Press and Magid Books and the Biblical Museum of Natural History, and it gives me an amazing opportunity to speak to one of my favorite guests. Rabbi Natan Slifkin grew up in Manchester, England, Spent many years of study at Yeshivot in Jerusalem and received his rabbinic ordination from Ar Sameach. Rabbi Slifkin graduated from the Lander Institute in Jerusalem with an MA in Jewish Thought and Law and is currently pursuing a PhD in Jewish History at Bar Ilan with a dissertation on rabbinic encounters with zoology. He's published numerous works on the interface between Judaism and the natural world. He's also taught at several institutions and is a popular lecturer around the world. He's founder and director of the Biblical Museum of Natural History in Beit Shemesh, Israel, and lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh. With his family, Rabbi Natan Slifkin, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Hi, great to be back. I appreciate that, and uh, I'll, I'll start off by letting you know that an exchange between me and you has become an iconic tale in uh, Nahum Siegel Network uh, in the Nahum Siegel Network arena. I asked you, Uh-oh. I asked you once on the air, <laughs> I asked you once on the air, which is the most Jewish animal, the animal that behaves most Jewishly, not necessarily a kosher animal. I don't know if you recall your answer. But I, I can, do not remember. But I can tell you that I've spread this around in many, many public appearances. You told me at that time uh, that you felt it might be the uh, the uh, the mama bear, the way she cares for her cubs, and that would. Put, oh yeah. You remember Jewish the, mother. The Jewish mother, right? The quintessential Jewish mother from the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. No reason to change that, right? You'd still go with that today. Yeah, well, yeah. We'll still <laughs> stick with that. Uh, yeah. I, Overprotective I, Jewish mother. Exactly. I am sure plenty of people have asked you this before. Uh, how does a nice Jewish boy get into the topic of zoology? Is this something that has fascinated you from your youth? Yeah, since I was two years old. You know, always, always fascinated by animals. And uh, I was the kind of kid that people said to me, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" And I always said, "I want to want to have a zoo." <laughs> so people laughed at me because you know, obviously, not a job for a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> and uh, they said I should be a computer programmer. And then when I went to yeshiva, I decided I wanted to become a rabbi. That was even worse, you know. Certainly not a job for a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> uh, but then I decided to look into what does the Torah have to say about the animal kingdom, combine my interests, and I found this incredible wealth of material that's kept me busy now for over 20 years, is uh, it, learning it, writing about it, teaching about it. Is it difficult to become comfortable with animals? You know, a lot of people are afraid, apprehensive. You certainly don't know how an animal is going to react to so many different things that a human being could do. Is it difficult to get comfortable around them? Um, well, I guess some people are more innately comfortable uh, than others. Some people it takes a bit of work. Like uh, the museum, we have a, a secretary who, when she started, was absolutely petrified. And now she's quite comfortable even handling uh, the big boa constrictor. So um, I guess some people are more natural and some people it takes a bit of work. Are there any that maintain you as apprehensive? Any animals? Uh, well, I have, I think, a healthy uh, concern around venomous animals. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and and uh, when it comes to large animals, whether it be, I don't know, lions, tigers, and even larger, like elephants and giraffes, you're able to be uh, still in your comfort zone? 
Uh, yeah, a little, a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable just because I do know what they can do to you. But uh, I usually get, you know, when I do various uh, video documentaries, I get to meet some um, some tame wild animals. So I'm usually just so excited to see them um, that I, I I forget my fear. Wow. That actually got me in trouble uh, two years ago. I was doing a video shoot with a quasi tame lion, and um, the trainer made it clear to me that I just shouldn't get near to him while he's eating his, his meal. But I was just so intrigued by him that I kept him just subconsciously moving closer and closer to him until at one point I was like two feet away and he just turned around and went, <clears throat> and uh, on the video you see the smile just drop off my face. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. Right now, Todd Slifkin is with us. The book is called The Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom, OU Press, Magid Release, and of course this is the OU Jewish Reaction Program. Uh, the, the research into this work, and it is uh, it is a volume of over 400 pages, uh, it must have been. It must be impossible to describe. How, how many? How long did it take to do all this? Uh, it took 14 years. Wow. Um, I have to admit that if I'd known how long it would take when I started, I doubt I would have. Uh, I wouldn't have started. There were a few times when I almost gave up, but uh, kept plugging away. Um, it was. A, it was a surprise to me just how much material there is in the Torah about so many animals, even, even obscure animals like you know a hyena. You think you know what does the Torah have to say about a hyena? But even there, with those, we found sources in, in Tanakh, in the Gemara, in the Midrash. There's just so much material to, uh, to explore. It was really a, a fascinating uh, voyage of discovery for me. It's unbelievable, and it's just such a, it turned out to be such a beautiful work. Congratulations. It must have been so satisfying when it was finally released for you. Yes, indeed. Yeah, also we put a lot of uh, work into choosing photos. I must have gone through over 10,000 photographs choosing ones that would be uh, just right for the for the book. Yeah, and they look fantastic. Uh, animals, in a way, uh, are one of the dominant themes of the Torah. Would you agree? I mean, for, even, you know, obviously from the creation of animals in the very first Parsha, all the way until the end, there's always some type of presence of animals, or whether it's symbolic, whether it's, uh, you know, carbonate, whether it's the actual laws that have to do with how we use animals. There's always mm-hmm. there's always a very large presence of them in the Torah. Right, and you'll see the Nevi'im, you know, they, they lived in a world where they were very connected to nature, and if they wanted to uh, illustrate a lesson or teach some concepts, uh, they would use the animal kingdom. I would say that most mentions of animals in Tanakh are symbolic purposes. Like the Nevi'im, especially in Navi, the Nevi'im trying to convey uh, some imagery, some symbolism, and using animals to do so, whether it's the, the lion to convey you know, awesome power, or uh, uh, a leopard to, to convey uh, brazenness. You know, they were they were drawing, they were they were living the world of nature. They were very in touch with the animal kingdom, very sensitive to the different characteristics of animals. So that's the canvas that they drew from when they wanted to paint their pictures. Right, and of course there are many episodes that have to do with animals. We just had one recently with the uh, uh, with the story of the Akeda. The animal, of course, ends up being the one that sacrificed the god instead of Isaac. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so stories too. Uh, the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom and uh, Rabbi Natan Slifkin is with us. You know, just your introduction, uh, and I don't even know if this is officially the introduction, I think. Yeah, it says general introduction. Just the introduction I think we could spend an entire hour on. Because after you define Torah in the few paragraphs, you then talk about animals as participants, as we just went ahead and alluded to, then animals and laws and rituals, and again, a dominant part of the Torah, right? There's there, the, As much as we, the average person who's familiar with Torah, knows about the animal role in laws and rituals, uh, you went ahead and studied every one of them. It's really extensive. Yeah, there is a lot in terms of our interactions with animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, of course, inspiration from animals. Is that uh, also part of the uh, 
uh, the whole, um, uh, like the brachas of Yaakov, would that, you know, for his children, would that go under that category? No, that's more symbolism. It's animals representing character traits. Mm. Uh, inspiration was more like you find in the book of Eov in Job, which has uh, probably more discussion of animals than anywhere else, where God is describing many different examples of things in the animal kingdom to humble Eov. You know, because when Eov is trying to understand why God did all these terrible things to him, God's answer is essentially, you know, who are you to expect to understand me? So God, you know, God says, where were you and I made the world? So God describes the most awe-inspiring aspects of the animal kingdom, uh, whether it be uh, the mighty behemoth, the identity of which I discussed in the encyclopedia, or the mysterious uh, pattern of flight of, of the hawk in the sky. So that's all the idea of doing... Um, being inspired and being humbled by the uh, the grandeur of the animal kingdom. Unbelievable. And animals as educators, why, why is that different than how they teach us either through example or metaphorically or symbolically? Well, well that's it. I mean, sometimes the animal symbols are just representing a concept, but sometimes it's actually something we're supposed to learn from. Um, like, that's an idea where you have, uh, like in the famous Mishnah, where which says that we should be as brazen as a leopard and right. as light as a vulture and as swift as a gazelle and as mighty as a lion to fulfill the will of God. Uh, are all the animals mentioned in the Torah uh, the same as the way we know them? Uh, meaning, we see or we uh, you know we read in the Torah the name of an animal, how an animal is referred to, and then we go ahead and and you know assume that that we are referring to the same animal. You know, many centuries later, obviously, are there a lot of discrepancies? Are there a lot of terms in the Torah? Right. Where... Well, 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 there are. There are the cases where the popular translation is wrong, and it's a very interesting pattern emerges. You see that the um, the, the people who are getting it who mistranslate it are people from a particular part of the world. Like the tzvi is often translated as deer. Right. But when you look at uh, when you look at the Torah, you look at the Talmud, you see it can't be the deer because the Tzvi is described as, as having horns that are just straight, that are not branched, mm. whereas deer do have branched horns. So it turns out that Tzvi is a gazelle. And, and then you have the Nesher, which is popularly translated as eagle. Right. But on the other hand, it's described as being bald in, in Scripture. And eagles are not bald. Even the bald eagle, lovely head of hair, uh, just has wide feathers. So the, the Nesher is the vulture. So what's happening is that different parts of the world have different animals. You know, if you see Israelis come to the U.S. for the first time, you know, what are the Israelis most excited to see in America? Squirrels. Really? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Israelis go wild with excitement over squirrels, and Americans are like, what? Uh, because the Israelis <laughs> have never seen them. No squirrels here. So different parts of the world have different animals. The animals of the Torah are the animals of Israel uh, and that part of the world, which you don't always have them in Europe. So, for example, in Europe, there's lots and lots of deer, but no gazelles. So in Europe, they transposed the name Tzvi from the gazelle to an animal that they were more familiar with, the deer. So that would tell, uh, the king, that would tell us then that Eretz Israel had an influx of gazelles at some point, right? Yeah, Eretz Israel has gazelles and deer, but Europe only has deer. Right. Now, Eretz Israel has uh, vult- spectacular vultures, uh, the highest flying bird, and uh, the, king, you know, the lord of the air, the king of birds. But in Europe, where you don't have vultures, it's the eagle that's the king of birds. So people, you know, people transpose the names to animals that they were more familiar with. So, in fact, right now, I, I just finished uh, my, my dissertation on, on, as you mentioned, the 19th century rabbinic encounters with zoology. You know, 19th century was the first time when you had um, rabbis writing books about the animals of the Torah. And in some cases, these were rabbis who came to Israel, or Palestine as it was back then, and uh, they, they, were, they were thrilled to be discovering all these animals uh, that in Europe they did, you know, lost knowledge of. And these animals answered a lot of uh, biblical zoological riddles. Can only imagine. 
Rabbi Natan Slifkin is with us. So when it says Ve'esayetchem al Sharim, who is it in fact that's transporting us, or what is it that's right. transporting us? Right. So it's vultures. So now I know this is disappointing to a lot of people, and in fact, many years ago I was uh, working as a consultant to art school on their Talmud. And uh, when I pointed out that Nesho is the vulture, you know, the editor called me up. He was very upset. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's demeaning to think that we're, we're going on vultures. But uh, the truth is, again, this is cultural. You know, in America, the vulture is regarded as being, you know, a loathsome, uh, you know, a, a disgusting bird. Right. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's from the Jungle Book. Maybe it's because in America the only vultures you have are turkey vultures. But on the other hand, if you think about the condor, so the condor in America is regarded as being something majestic. Right. Right? Because it, you know, it's a huge, spectacular bird. So the equivalent uh, in, in Israel is the vulture. The condor is the uh, American equivalent of the vulture. The vulture is the you know, largest, most magnificent bird of prey. And as I mentioned, it's the highest flying bird. You, know, you look at the Guinness Book of Records, and you'll see that the altitude record for a bird is held by a griffin vulture, which collided with an airplane at 37,000 feet. Wow. Yep. So, uh, so that's the Lord of the Air. <laughs> it certainly is. Now, this volume is only on wild animals, right? Yeah. Well, like I said, it took me 14 years just to right. get through there, and it's uh, already over 400 pages. So well, uh, I do well, hope that future volumes will cover birds, you know, reptiles, insects, and so on. Right. Still and, and there's so much. Several years down and, the line. And I would imagine that, that in those categories there are so many more than there are wild animals. Am I right, or am, or am I totally off uh, on that? There's more types, but less discussion of them. In other words, the, the primary animals of interest in Tanakh, I mean, they're, just, they're also the primary animals of interest to the average person, you know, lions and elephants and, uh, and hippos and, and, and bears. But uh, they're also the primary symbolic animals used in Tanakh. In other words, you will find, you know, many, many more types of birds mentioned, but there's, there's less, uh, less on them. I watched it's the, really the wild animals which are the, the primary uh, focus. I watched the video about your museum. Uh, which is fascinating. It's wonderful. Two minutes Thank on, you. two minutes online. Everybody should take a look at it. Um, wh- how is this? Uh, h- how does this? W- how is it possible to bring children and adults even closer and even you know more interested in Torah education when they walk into your museum? All right, so the, the idea of the museum, it's uh, you know for many years I've been teaching about Torah in the animal kingdom and. I was doing Torah tours of zoos, which right. were great, but they weren't necessarily so focused, and sometimes it's hard to slap around in the heat. So I wanted to create a really focused experience, uh, and that's the idea of the museum. It's all, all, every exhibit is relating to the Torah or the Talmud, and the animals, you can get right up close to everything. You know, the, uh, the larger animals are taxidermy exhibits that you can get right up to. Um, the smaller animals, uh, we take them out, we pass them around for people to hold, you know, they're live, live exhibits. And the idea is that uh, it's uh, an experience that's you know, tremendously exciting, but also tremendously educational. And the encyclopedia complements it by having going into a lot more detail. Should I assume that uh, the week of Parshas Noach is your busiest time of year? <laughs> uh, no, busiest time is dictated by vacation time. <laughs> yeah. So that would be Pesach, Summer, Sukkot, and Hanukkah. I can imagine, but you know, all the petting zoos—they, they, they all, all the mobile petting zoos—pop up here around Parshas Noach time for, oh, really? uh-huh. for all the for all the different schools for good reason, obviously. Um, Rabbi Natan Slifkin is with us. We're talking about the uh, Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom. Um, are there uh, is there a way to determine why certain animals became the focus of sacrifices of Jewish ritual? I mean, there are animals that we would never, ever, because the Torah would never instruct us to, you know, use for that type of ritual. And, of course, there are those uh, that, that we could name that are dominant 
when it comes to what type oh, of... Domestic animals, right? You can only bring sacrifices from domestic animals. Those are the ones that people have. So it's only going to be, you know, sheep and cows, things like that. It's not going to be... It's not going to be uh, gazelles or deer or, or elephants or lions or anything like that. It ends up being a pretty small category then. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It, and a, any lesson from that or simply what we've been taught growing up that, uh, that, that, that that is the proper animal, so to speak, with the proper you know demeanor to sacrifice to God? Um, I would say maybe just relate to practical terms. So that's the animals people have. Right. right that's the animals that people can acquire. And, uh, therefore able to bring as offerings. And like a wild animal, which would be very complicated to, uh, to bring as an offering. Yeah. Wouldn't be able to catch a leopard that quickly, I guess, huh? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. d- did a leopard exist in the land of Israel? Yeah, they still, there are still wild leopards in Israel. Uh, only about three of them left. So your chances of being attacked by one are quite small. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, uh, in biblical times, and this is something which the encyclopedia and the museum bring out uh, very strikingly, that, uh, people don't realize what kind of animals used to roam Eretz Israel used to roam the land of Israel. Lions, leopards, cheetahs, uh, bears, crocodiles, hippos. These were all animals that lived wild in the land of Israel. And is there any that was, um, that was dominant at the time? That was, uh, you know, that we'd be surprised really ruled over the land, so to speak? Well, you know, people had a, you know, there was a genuine fear that you could travel somewhere and you could be, you know, mauled by a lion or a bear or a leopard. Even and in... now, until quite recently, the bears, at least the bears, bears were uh, in Israel till 1917. Crocodiles also till the uh, early uh, early 20th century. Where did the crocodiles hang out in Israel? Uh, in the in the swamps and the rivers. But Israel used to have a lot more. Uh, it used to be a uh, it used to be a lot more forest first of all in biblical times before it was cut down and then there were a lot of swamps and so on until you know those were drained for human settlement. So that's how you could have uh, hippopotamuses and crocodiles living wild in the land of Israel. Yeah, I remember actually seeing a hippo in Israel in the zoo. That was the, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but you're saying they were roaming freely at one time. Uh, is there such yeah, a yeah? One, one of the guides at the museum has a hippo tooth that he found in the Canaret. Wow. Uh, is there such a thing as a kosher wild animal? Yeah, um, gazelles, deer, giraffes, uh, buffalo, lots of kosher wild animals. And, Ibex. and is it is it difficult? I mean, this is always a question that comes up. Is it difficult to uh, do proper ritual slaughter on a buffalo, for instance? Um, well, you know, the bigger the bigger the animal, the harder it is to restrain. You know, g- giraffes. The people are always asking, is a giraffe kosher? Right. And there's a popular myth. That, uh, yes, it's kosher, but we don't eat it because we don't know where in the neck to slaughter it. Right. And that's just a myth, because anywhere in the neck is fine. Uh, the reason why we don't eat giraffes is the same reason why non-Jews don't eat giraffes, I guess. Just uh, not much supply and not much demand. That's the whole thing, huh? And the... Mm-hmm. And- uh- because there was I don't this... think the zoo would react well if you would, you know, go to the zoo and ask them if you could uh, slaughter <laughs> one of their giraffes well, that... or uh, take a challenge out of it. Well, that's for sure. But there's also a, uh, a discussion about whether we we know how to, not just the area of the neck, but that there needs to be some type of masora or eyewitness account for generations, that it was actually that it actually was shechted. Is there something like that as well? There is such a viewpoint that's amongst, um, in Israel, people who follow the rulings of the Chazonish, uh, they're of the view that you need to have a tradition, which we don't have for giraffes. But most uh, rabbinic authorities do not follow that view. I mean, that's why, you know, in the, in the, in the U.S. you can get a bison with an OU kosher certification. Right. There's, there's no tradition in bison that's an American animal, but uh, most rabbinic authorities are of the view that as long as it has split hooves and chews the cut, that's all you need. Rabbi Natan Slifkin is with us, the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom, and it's an amazing volume. Uh, how about some of these animals I never heard of before I opened your book? The Heart to Beast, could you tell us what that is? Uh, that's a very odd-looking kind of antelope. 
that uh, used to live in Israel, died out from the region a couple of thousand years ago. Um, probably the other one which you uh, didn't recognize was the, uh, the aurochs. So the aurochs is an interesting one. That's the biblical Re'aim, an animal which is, uh, many people are confused as to its identity. And if you look in the King James Bible, it's identified as a unicorn. Um, but in fact, there's a lot of evidence that it's an animal called the aurochs, which became extinct about 400 years ago. Uh, basically a, a gigantic uh, wild ox. And that's what it seems to be the, uh, the Re'aim. I also never heard of the ibex. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. Am I that enough time in Israel? Am I that de- am I that deficient in my uh, knowledge of animals? <laughs> I'm afraid to say, Nachum, I mean, you've disappointed me. Now, uh, the ibex is the animal that you see in Ein Gedi. If you ever go to Ein Gedi, it's the uh, the goat with the magnificent uh, curved horns, uh, ridged horns, which is also on the uh, it's like the symbol of uh, the, the Israel Nature and Parks Authority. In the video of your in in the video of your museum, you're blowing a shofar or a horn from which animal? The 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 straight one. Um, that's not me, but yes, that oh, was in the video. He is blowing a shofar of an oryx, O R Y X. Yeah, that's a a beautiful another animal in the Torah. A beautiful white antelope with long straight horns, which actually is often also thought to be have to do with the legend of the unicorn because it's uh, it's white and its horns are so long and straight and symmetrical that from a distance it looks like it only has one horn. Uh, elephants are mentioned in Tanakh? Elephant tusks are mentioned as gifts that were brought to King Shlomo, uh, King Solomon, and ships coming every three years bringing uh, elephants and monkeys and peacocks. So those are three animals. That, those are the unusual exceptions to the fact that, you know, normally the animals in Scripture are the animals that were native to the land of Israel. But here you have some exceptions. The animals were not indigenous to the region, but they were. It says they were imported as gifts for King Solomon. Wow! So elephant tusks uh, were brought for him. He made his throne out of them. At the museum, we have this spectacular, huge set of elephant tusks on display. And uh, in the Talmud, there's you know very extensive discussions about elephants, which raise all kinds of interesting uh, questions and various halachot and various legal scenarios. And that's what I discussed in the encyclopedia. And you have a section on war elephants. Were they in fact um, uh, were they in fact um, uh, effective in war? Oh yeah, you know it's just uh, terrifying for people. Remember, you have to remember historically most people were not that familiar with elephants. So uh, the sight of these you know huge animals with uh, you know, holding the uh, howdah on their back with several soldiers on their back would be absolutely uh, you know cause total panic in the enemy. Wow, unbelievable. And I never associated monkeys with <laughs> with Jewish tradition, but you have a whole chapter on them. Sure, yeah, that was, I think that was the, uh, the amazing thing about uh, writing this encyclopedia, just finding so much material and so many different animals. You know, monkeys also, because of their intelligence, raise a number of uh, interesting uh, uh, halachic questions, you know, questions in Jewish law. So that's the, uh, the bulk of the discussion in that chapter. Unbelievable. And the porcupine, anything you can tell us about that uh, animal in Jewish tradition? Um, porcupine, again, an animal where there's a question about uh, exactly uh, classification of it. You know, the, in, the Torah classifies the animal kingdom differently to modern zoology. You know, in modern zoology, we have categories like mammals, birds, reptiles, right. amphibians. Right. Um, so in the Torah, there's a different system of classification. There are you know, uh, domestic animals, wild animals, shratzim, which are uh, creeping creatures. So the question is, you know, is a porcupine classified as a wild animal, or is it classified along with, you know, mice and weasels as a creeping creature? So that's that's where the porcupine comes up. What's the Hebrew word for porcupine, or the biblical um, word? So in, uh, in the Talmud, it's called a, it's called a kupad. In modern Hebrew, it's called a darban. You know, sometimes you'll have differences of names 
between uh, animals in, 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 in Tanakh or in the Talmud and in modern Hebrew. What was your biggest challenge with this volume? I mean, was there one particular animal that where the research was just so difficult or anything? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely the lion. Just cause the, uh, well, first of all, the lion, there's just so much material on it. You know, 150 different verses, over 200 references in, in the Talmud and the Midrash. And every single one of them I had to research in detail, so that was kind of overwhelming. And that's aside, and, also, and that's aside from its relatives, like the cheetah, leopard, etc. You're just talking about the lion yeah, exclusively. Yeah, yeah. Entirely separate from that. And in the lion, it was actually a very interesting case with the story with the lion that I was struggling with the uh, descriptions of lion attacks in scripture, which always speak about a, a, a solitary male lion attacking. And you know, when you when you study zoology, one of the best basic things you learn about lions is that you know who does all the hunting. It's, it's the females, right? It's the lionesses. They're right. uh, hunting in, uh, in, in packs, hunting in tribes and groups. And uh, it's the lazy males who just, you know, sleep all day and uh, <laughs> enjoy the fruits of the, uh, the lionesses' work. Right. So I, I was struggling with this. Why, you know, in zoology, and they've done studies. They found that, you know, uh, there was a famous a guy, George Shallow, in the 70s, who studied lion attacks in the Serengeti. And, uh, you know, he studied, you know, one over a thousand lion attacks. And he found that 98% of the time it's being done by the, by the females, by the lionesses. And yet the Tanakh and Scripture never describes it that way. It's always speaking about this, it's solitary males. So I was struggling to uh, resolve this, and then uh, just that, that day I was working on it, something came up in the news, a new report on lion behavior. And what they figured out is that all, this, all the, the well-known fact that it's the lionesses who do the hunting, which came from this study in the Serengeti, that's because in the Serengeti it's, it's the open savanna where the only way to catch animals is by chasing them down. And the lionesses are much better at running than the males because the males, are, they're big and they have the mane, which makes it hard to camouflage. So that's where the lionesses can hunt. But then uh, when they started studying lion behavior, lions that live in forests, they found that there it's the males that hunt using a surprise ambush. And, and of course, the land of Israel, now it's pretty open terrain, but in biblical times it was dense forest. So the type of lion attacks described in Scripture are the type of lion attacks that you would have in the forest in the forests in, in biblical Israel. Unbelievable, and that's and that and that mm-hmm. and that justifies more. Well, a couple of things. First of all, it justifies more that Judah is compared to the lion, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. as the head, as the king, because you don't want a, a lazy animal to be the example. You want the most, you know, the most active one, I guess, or or, or one right. that's relatively active. And then, you know, frankly, outside of the Bible. I guess this reaffirms the you know lion being king of the jungle, so to speak. And you just said it that it's a jungle atmosphere that where the lion really is king. Right. Well, it's it's the male, and he's you know he's the strongest, and uh, he doesn't have to get to the speed when it's a jungle attack. So he's able to do the uh, he's able to do the attacks in the jungle. You mentioned hyena before. You have it on uh, on page one seventy four. Tell us about the hyena. Hyena. Okay. So you know most people hate hyenas. Right. <laughs> and. Uh, I think, you know, in The Lion King, if you think about The Lion King, it, uh, uh, it, 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 it Disney um, differentiated the animal kingdom into good animals and bad animals. Right. right. You had good animals like the noble lion, Simba, and the cute little meerkat, Timon, and then you had bad animals, like, uh, you know, the lion that spoke with a British accent. Right. As soon as he started speaking, you knew he was going to be the bad guy. And, uh, and hyenas. Right, they're the bad guys in The Lion King. But in real life, hyenas, are, they're not bad animals. You know, three months ago, I was on safari in Africa. Every year, I take a group of people to Africa. We do a Torah tour of Africa to see the, uh, the animals of the Torah, which you know, used to be in Israel, but now you can only see them in Africa. So we're, we're tracking a lion, and all of a sudden, I called out to the, the, the guy driving the Jeep. I said, stop, stop, because I just saw a really interesting pile of poop. It was white. Right, very unusual. So what animal, I knew what it was, what animal makes white poop? A hyena. 
Why? Because uh, they crush bones. Uh, they, eat, they actually eat bones, so they have a lot of calcium, so that's why they have uh, white poop. And so when you think about it, you know, it's funny, Disney has this whole uh, thing in the Lion King, the circle of life, showing how all the animals are part of the circle of life, but they leave the hyenas out of that sequence because, you know, they view hyenas as bad animals. But really, hyenas have a crucial role in the circle of life. You know, they're the Hever Kadisha. They're the undertakers of the savannah. They're the ones cleaning up all the dead bodies. So really, the hyena is something which has a, a very important role in the natural world, and it shouldn't be seen as a, as a bad animal. Unbelievable. Every animal has a role, or we can't say every? Absolutely, absolutely. Everyone. Every animal has its place in the ecosystem. So the hyenas one is perhaps, you know, an unappealing one, you know, cleaning up all the dead carcasses, but it's still a, a very important role. Unbelievable. Um, we, we may, as we went through this earlier, people may not have realized that uh, that bats, for instance, that you mentioned, of course, we were talking about vultures, etc. cetera, uh, some of the things that we would normally associate as birds, they're actually animals. Uh, mammals, right. So the bat is a, it's a mammal. So people wonder then why is the bat listed in, in the Torah's list of non-kosher birds. Right. But the answer is it's not a list of non-kosher birds. You know, we translate the biblical Hebrew word oaf as bird, and then you have the question, but a bat isn't a bird, it's a mammal. But, you know, it's, it's the English word bird that has a very specific me, uh, meaning of something with a beak and feathers that lays eggs. But the Hebrew word oaf just doesn't have that meaning. So a bat is an oaf, even though a bat is not a bird. Do you have a fascination with fish, or it ends with the animal kingdom? <laughs> uh, I like fish too. The fish are actually—they're uh, not—they're not because they're—you know—they're in a remote environment. So you'll find that they're not much about fish in the Torah uh, in Scripture. There's not a single—you know—individual type of fish specified anywhere in Scripture. Only the general term for fish. Is there, you know, we always talk about, the, not always, but there are people who conjecture, you know, for instance, what the fruit was that uh, Chava gave to Adam and different things like that. Do we know what kind of snake, or in fact he was a snake, the Nachash, in the story of Bracious? Uh Well, you know, you have very different views on that whole topic. You have uh, Maimonides and others who are of the view that the snake there in the story is not actually a snake. It's a, it's a metaphor for, for Satan, for the evil inclination. Right. But uh, interestingly, you know, even if it is a metaphor, it's still, you know, it's using the snake as a metaphor. So what's the idea behind that? So perhaps the idea is that in that story, you know, the snake tells a lie. That God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, you'll become mortal. And the snake says, no, go ahead, you'll be fine. So he tells a lie and wants his punishment so that he loses his legs. Right. So why is losing the legs a punishment for telling a lie? So the reason is that if you tell a lie, you haven't got a leg to stand on. Right, the Talmud says, Shekel ain't lo aglaim, right. a lie has no legs. And if you, you think about the Hebrew words, the Hebrew word for truth, emet, is made up of the letters aleph, mem, taf, each one of which is two legs. Whereas the, the Hebrew word for falsehood, shekel, made up of the letters shin, kuf, resh, each letter coming to a point. So the idea is that truth has legs, truth has basis, and falsehood doesn't. So the idea of the snake telling a lie and losing its legs is that if you tell a lie, you know, you've given in to fantasy, and uh, you don't have a leg to stand on. How many varieties? So see you. How many varieties of snakes are there? Oh, lots and lots, thousands. Um, in the museum, we found actually that uh, people really like meeting big snakes. So we have a big boa constrictor and an even bigger python that we always we take out of the cages for people to uh, to hold. That's and always uh, many people find the most memorable part of the visit. And when you say big in reference to the python, how large is it? Uh, well, he's still young, so he's only about nine feet long right now. Uh, it's a Burmese python, so when they're full-grown, they can be 25 feet long and over 200 pounds. What's the daily diet? Uh, weekly diet. He he likes chickens. Our boa constrictor likes rabbits, and he likes chickens. And meaning a whole chicken once per week? 
Yeah. And that's enough to keep him going, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, it, it must be fascinating being in your environment on a regular basis. That's all I can say. <laughs> it must be fascinating. Never Rabbi, a dull moment. That's for sure. Rabbi Natan Slifkin, give us a minute on the on the museum. How do people get information? How do they visit? How do they find out about it? Right. So the museum is it's guided tours because that's the idea that the guide explains the significance of each animal in the tour and helps you uh, meet the animal up close. And we have a website, www.biblicalnaturalhistory.org, where people can find out more about the museum and watch the preview video, and then people are, you know, reserve a tour in the language of their choice. It's pretty, uh, that's how it works. It's pretty amazing. What would you say to the young person today who wants to be a vet or, you know, is uh, from a Jewish family that might expect him to go to a different profession and wants to hang out with animals as you had this desire to do? Right, well, there are Orthodox Jewish vets, and there are other careers with animals. And I would just say that, you know, you never know how your dream will come true. When I was a kid and I had a dream of uh, working with wild animals, and everyone laughed at it, it means that it was ridiculous. But uh, look, lo and behold, it came true. It is unbelievable. The Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom. It's the Samson edition. Volume 1 is Chayot, Wild Animals. It's by Natan Slifkin. It's an OU Press release, Magid Books, and, of course, the Biblical Museum of Natural History by Slifkin. Always a delight to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There he is, Rabbi Natan Slifkin. He is uh, incredible. Uh, this book is amazing. It is um, j- The pictures, just the photos are amazing. And uh, you could uh, check it out and uh, bring it into your home. And I'm telling you, the kids and the adults will love it. Rabbi Slifkin, of course, from Manchester, England. He is the... Um, director and founder of the Biblical Museum of Natural History in Beit Shemesh, Israel, and as you heard, took 14 years, a 14-year project to um, finally release this amazing work entitled the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program. This is the Nachum Siegel Network. Don't forget of all our all our social media outlets, including Facebook. Uh, the, um, the Facebook update page is... Um, Simply entitled Nachum Siegel Network on Twitter at Nachum Siegel Net on Instagram, Nachum Siegel Network. And um, we'll continue with some music as we continue with the OU Jewish Reaction Program right here at the Nachum Siegel Network.
It's the OU Jewish Reaction Show. You're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. That's from the very best of Kalbach, Chabad, and Breslau from Soul Farm. Thanks for tuning in to NSN. OU Jewish Reaction every Tuesday, 9 a.m. I thank Rabbi Slifkin who joined us earlier in the show. Make sure to be tuned in every single week because the OU provides amazing guests. Information about everything the OU does, kashras and otherwise, go to OU.org. Again, that's OU.org. Uh, they're involved in every aspect of the community, including political advocacy and much, much more. Check it out online. Again, it's OU.org. Our social media presence, we continue to encourage you to make sure to like our Facebook update page. It's simply entitled Nahum Siegel Network and on Twitter at Nahum Siegel Net. And uh, to uh, download, install the NSN app, which gives you the opportunity to tune in from around the world and to really hear us uh, loudly and clearly and in the easiest way possible. So again, uh, go to your Android or iPhone store, your app store, download, install the Nahum Single Network app, and enjoy listening from anywhere and everywhere. Uh, David Gabay is next. A little bit of music here at the OU Jewish Reaction Show. This is the Nahum Single Network. Amar 
OU Jewish Reaction Program. That's David Gabay. Ready to wrap things up here on this Tuesday. 
and uh, reminding everybody to um, download and install the NSN app. Make sure you have it in your iPhone or Android. Listen in from anywhere around the world and uh, do so without uh, any worries whatsoever. Uh, we thank you for listening in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. to the OU Jewish Reaction Program. Today, the focus on Natan Slifkin, Rabbi Natan Slifkin and his encyclopedia, the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom. Is an OU Press release, Magid Books, and of course from his Museum of Natural Jewish History in uh, Beit Shemesh, Israel. We thank you for listening to the Nahum Siegel Network and the OU Jewish Reaction Program here at NSN.